Point of View Audio presents Part 2 of The Way It Has to Be A novella written by Michael E. Hammond It was probably about a week later when I found myself looking at Blair Everett's house for the first time. I remember that it looked much like it did now, while, at the same time, feeling almost completely different. Then the house seemed tall and proud, full of life and full of excitement. It was a place I'd never been before. It was a beautiful two-story house, somewhat typical of what you would expect to see in the country, resembling a large cube-shaped design with a peaked roof and dormers that accented all of the second-story windows. A covered L-shaped porch wrapped around the side of the house, which was usually decorated with colorful hanging baskets. Well-kept flower beds lined the entire foundation, as gardening had always been one of Mrs. Everett's favorite hobbies. The large tree in the front yard was crowned in leaves, reflecting even more of that general feeling of vitality. The yard was green and pristine, and not a fence could be seen for miles. I remember thinking then, just by the look of their house alone, the Everetts clearly had money. As I pulled into the driveway, the first thing I noticed was the new addition of a wire fence that Miss McCarney had mentioned on the phone. It was a simple change, but a dramatic one all the same. Something about the presence of the fence made the yard seem much smaller than I had remembered it, while at the same time making the house feel encaged rather than free as it had always been. As I looked upon it all those years later, the tree in the front yard looked small and pitiful. The branches were bare and broken off in places, the bark starting to peel. The flower beds were overgrown with tall brownish-yellow grass and dormant thorn bushes. The once greenish siding was now sun-bleached and faded. It all looked dead in that cold February grayness. I slowly pulled down the driveway, making my way closer and closer to the house, until I was right in front of the garage door. There, I shut the car off, and the sound of the engine faded. I was deafened by the quiet of the country and the echoes of the past ringing in my head. Memories upon memories were filling my mind at the mere sight of this shell of a house. I could only imagine what floodgates would be opened when I actually stepped foot inside the old house again. I stepped out of the car and soon found myself on the stone walkway leading up to the door. With each step I took, the door seemed frozen in place. It was as if no matter how many steps I took, I wasn't really moving at all. Though soon enough I was standing at the foot of the steps leading up to the front porch. I reached out for the railing and touched it. Despite it all feeling like some kind of strange dream, touching that railing made me realize for the first time that all of this was real. I climbed the three stairs onto the porch and noticed, for the first time, the old hanging baskets, home to nothing now but a bouquet of dead twigs. On a small round metal table near the door, I saw the cardboard box that seemed out of place and immediately remembered Miss McCarney stating that the keys and paperwork to take possession would be in a box on the porch. I approached it and tore open the flaps, 
Inside, there were numerous pages of what looked like official documents and a small manila envelope. I disregarded the pages immediately and went for the envelope. As expected, inside I found a ring of numerous dingy metal keys. I held them in my hand for a moment, taking in the strange and sordid fact that this house was now officially mine. It was as if the keys had a mind of their own, for without even realizing it, I had already jammed the master key into the lock. It twisted, and I heard a weighty click as I was overcome by the strange realization that, by unlocking this house, I had also unlocked a heavily guarded part of my past. I turned the knob and the door creaked open. Before I knew it, I was standing in the foyer. It felt empty. It felt lifeless. And to my surprise, it didn't look at all that different. Nothing had moved. Nothing had changed. In fact, everything looked strangely as it always had. As I stood there looking into the shadowy interior of this ghost of a house, I could hardly bring myself to move. How can I describe what it was like? Do you know that feeling when you walk into a house and suddenly realize that nobody's home? Everything is strangely quiet and everything is in its place, as if it's simply on pause, just waiting for life to pick back up. You realize that you shouldn't be there because your presence alone is violating their personal space. You are an uninvited guest, an intruder, and at any moment they'll come walking in that door, and in their wake they'll bring life rushing back in a more inviting way. That is how it felt. I could only imagine the looks on their faces when they opened that door to find me, Benjamin Saunders, standing in their home. The nerve for me to show up after everything that had happened. They would probably kill me on the spot. Only, they wouldn't come through that door. Not now. Not ever again. Jacob and Deborah Evett were dead. And for reasons I might never understand, they left this all to me. I moved into the living room where pale light spilled in through the windows, casting shadows on everything. Family pictures were still on the walls, and even the furniture was still the same. The air felt still and stagnant, yet smelled like what I can only describe as someone else's house. It was a spicy scent, mixed with that of Deborah's perfume, as well as a culmination of many other indistinguishable scents. In the corner of the room, just as I had remembered it, was a large custom-built entertainment system. The only difference was where the large bulky, box-shaped television once it sat, a newer, flat-screen model was in its place. I moved toward it, and the floor creaked and groaned. I ran my hand along the smooth wooden surface, only to find a thin layer of dust. With a smile, I took a seat on the carpet, just as I had done countless times in the past, and pulled open the bottom cabinet doors. Inside were a few DVDs, and to my surprise, the old collection of now-dusty video cassettes that I had so clearly remembered. I thumbed through the old tapes and found one in particular that stood out in my mind. In bold red letters was the title, The Shadow Coven's Curse. It was just a movie, and not a great one at that, but in all reality it had been the cornerstone in everything that had happened between us. Now that I think about it, 
it was the beginning of everything both good and bad. About a week had passed since I first met Blair at that unbearable party. It was a Friday night, and I had just got home from school and literally had nothing to do. That is when I remembered the phone number Blair had given me. I pulled the partially torn napkin from my coat pocket and just stared at it, debating whether or not I should even give him a call. I had dialed the number on my cordless phone, nervousness getting the best of me. My finger hovered over the send button for what felt like an eternity, as a million and one thoughts had flooded my head. I had almost talked myself out of going through with it when I finally let my finger complete the call. The phone rang a few times, giving me these last couple chances to chicken out and hang up, and I was just about to do so when I heard someone pick up on the other end. Hello? A woman's voice answered cheerfully. Hi, I heard myself say. I was just wondering if Blair was home? There was a pause that felt unnaturally long, and I wondered if I had dialed in correctly, or if maybe Blair had given me the wrong number. He is, the voice said. May I ask who's calling? Benjamin Saunders, I said. Benjamin. Her voice seemed to trail. It was clear that she didn't know who I was. Hold on, Benjamin, I'll get him. I could hear an exchanging of indiscernible muffled words before Blair finally picked up the phone. Benjamin, he said in a tone that was more excited than I had expected. I was beginning to think you weren't going to call me. Sorry, I said. I had a busy week. It's cool, he said. Still want to hang? And it was as simple as that. Arrangements were made, and a few short hours later I was being dropped off at the Everett house. I remember that we had a wonderful dinner, followed then by a quick tour of the house. One thing led to another, and we ended up in the living room watching a movie they had just picked up from the discount bin at the local video store. That movie was called The Shadow Coven's Curse. I cannot remember the exact plot now, but it involved witches, black magic, and obviously a curse that led to most of the main characters' deaths. You know, typical 90s horror movie stuff. Once the movie was over, Mrs. Everett sent us upstairs for bed. Blair went to his room, and I went to the guest room directly across the hall. The room was dark, and without thought, I let the door swing closed behind me before realizing that my duffel bag was still in Blair's room. I turned and reached for the knob, only to find that it wouldn't budge. Being new to the house, I wasn't even sure where the light switch was. I fumbled at the nearby walls, unable to find a switch. Seeing the light under the door, I felt my way back toward the knob and twisted it again. It wouldn't move. I remember a wave of panic coming over me as my mind turned to a similar scene in the movie we had just watched. I rattled at the doorknob, unable to get out. Suddenly, there was a click, and the door came swinging open. Blair was standing at the threshold, unable to hold back his laughter. I should have warned you, he chuckled. You want to leave this door open. For some reason, it's always locked, and it can only be open from the outside. I didn't particularly care much for that door, and... I remember that instead of sleeping in the guest room, I decided to sleep on the floor beside Blair's bed. We laid there in the darkness of his room as the moonlight spilled through the windows, Blair in his bed and myself on the floor beside him. I remember talking in hushed voices so that his parents didn't know we were still awake. I remember rambling on about the most random things 
and trying so hard not to laugh out loud. I remember getting back on the subject of that movie, Shadow Coven's Curse. What do you think about magic? he asked in all seriousness. I wasn't really sure how to answer. What do you mean? I asked. Like witchcraft, he said. Do you believe in such things? To be honest, I had always been kind of interested in witchcraft and the occult. It was one of those things I found fascinating, but never really spoke of to anyone else, for fear of being judged or ridiculed for the sake of everyone else's ignorance. I guess anything is possible, I said. I've read a few books on the subject. There was a pause as I looked up at the shadows on the ceiling cast by the moonlight. I've always been kind of interested in magic, he said at last. Green magic, not black, of course. It's the safe kind. And ye harm none, do as ye will, I quoted. It was something I remember reading in one of the few books my town's library had in its very limited occult section. Something about the darkness of the room made what could have possibly been an awkward subject feel strangely safe. Exactly, he said. There was another long pause, and I heard him turn over. And though I could not see him, I got the distinct impression that he was looking at me. You know what I believe? he asked. What's that? I believe in the guiding hand of fate, he said. I believe that magic is real, and though some of us may be able to tap into it and use it for good or evil, everything happens for a reason, and that reason is to keep the balance between chaos and fate. There was a long pause. Uh, for, for example, I think we were both at that party because we were meant to come together. I don't know. I just get a strong feeling when I'm with you that it's the way it has to be. It makes a lot of sense, I said. And I'd be lying if I said that our meeting didn't feel like a strange twist of fate. Mark my words, Benjamin, he said in a serious tone. Even you getting locked in that guest room holds an air of fate around it. He then broke into a hushed laughter, clearly still amused by the look of horror that had been on my face when he opened the door. I merely shook my head as the room grew quiet, and not long after that, we were both silently asleep. Despite everything that had happened to us, I've always remembered his premonition of fate when it came to the lock on the guest room door. Even though I'm certain he said it as a joke, Something about it always stuck with me. After all, it was one of the few things that never really played out. Unless, of course, you count the fact that it was because of that lock that I started staying in his room in the first place. The darkness of that night fell away, and a monochrome light filled the room once again. I was no longer examining the dusty cassettes in the old Everett living room. Somehow, as if on autopilot, I made my way to the second floor and was standing face to face with Blair Everett's bedroom door. So many years had passed and so much of this house felt exactly the same that I wondered if Blair's room would follow suit. My hand was shaking as I reached for the knob. There was a part of me that didn't want to open this door for fear of what I might see, while another part of me needed to see it one more time. I took a deep breath closed my eyes and forced myself 
to turn the knob. I pushed my way blindly through the door. When I opened my eyes, I felt a hollow emptiness that I was not at all expecting. It hit me like a punch to the gut, and it felt like the desecration of something sacred. I was staring into the shadow of an empty room. The walls were bare. The carpet had been ripped up, leaving nothing but exposed floorboards. Everything that had once given it life had been stripped away, as if it had never existed at all. As if he had never existed at all. Suddenly, my attention was no longer on the room itself, but beyond and out the window parallel to me. I was gazing out across the back of the property to a hill in the distance, and that which was far out beyond it. It was in that moment that I realized that I had not come here to see the house at all, but to see if it was still there, and of course, to see how much things had really changed. I abruptly turned from Blair's room and made my way down the hall, down the stairs, and back out the front door. I made my way back to my car, where I grabbed a pair of black leather gloves. Even as I pulled on the gloves, my eyes were fixed to the line of trees far beyond the edge of the property. The air had grown so cold since I was inside that I could now see my breath, white like clouds leaving my body. I buttoned my coat to drive the cold winter away, but it was of little use. The air was like ice, and it was chilling me to the bone, though it would take more than icy air and a winter's chill to keep me from continuing my search. I began walking down the driveway behind the house. The ground was hard with each step I took. The frozen dirt and gravel would crunch and crack under my feet. I walked beyond the driveway and through the frozen, colorless grass until I found myself at the edge of a wire fence. It seemed so odd to be stopped by something that in my past was never at all a boundary. This was just the middle of a rather large backyard, and now it was a barrier that just didn't belong there. I rested for a moment, my arms hugging the fence as I looked out across the expanse, noticing just how much things had really changed. It was like walking in a dream. This world, once full of bright and beautiful colors, had now fallen into nothing but a hundred shades of gray. The grass that was once well-kept was now overgrown, windswept, and dead. The sky that I remember being so blue was now a featureless backdrop of gray emptiness. It was all quite different than it had been that spring all those years ago. After that first night I spent at his house, Blair and I had been hanging out pretty much any chance we got. We talked quite a bit about magic and about how we both had a great interest in attempting to practice the craft. The only real obstacle in our paths was the simple fact that we didn't really know where to start. It wasn't long until my parents went out of town for a couple of weeks, and Blair had insisted that I stay at his place while they were gone. Honestly, the idea didn't take much convincing. Blair would drop me off at school in the morning and pick me up after, and best of all, I didn't have to deal with riding the bus for a few weeks. I remember one morning, not long after I'd been staying with Blair, we were sitting at the dining room table, scrounging up scraps for breakfast, before he planned on taking me to school. We were both drinking coffee, and he was particularly interested in some article he'd been reading in the paper. The light came spilling in the windows through the set of glass wind chimes, and it was casting an array of colors on the back side of the paper. I was still pretty hazy from my night's sleep, 
and found myself mesmerized by the dancing colors on the page. The coffee had started to kick in, and I noticed that just above where the light was shining was an ad for something called the Nightingale. What are you so interested in? Blair asked, cocking his brow. I pointed to the back of the page he'd been reading and said, What's that ad about? He flipped it over. Hmm, he mused. The Nightingale, a new age magic shop for all your spiritual needs. Books, herbs, candles, crystals, and more. You wanted a place to start, I grinned. I'd say we should check this place out as soon as possible. I didn't realize how literally he would take my suggestion. The next thing I knew, we were skipping school for the day while Blair had dragged me off to check out this little magic shop from the ad. We drove into town and at first had a hard time finding the place. After all, on the outside, it didn't look much like a shop at all. To be honest, it seemed like the kind of place that only existed in stories. The place was kind of discreet looking, just like a normal brick house. The front yard was completely overrun by lush green vines. Stone steps led up the street right to the front door. The windows were covered by thick, heavy curtains, making it impossible to get even the slightest peek inside. Had there not been a tiny sign nestled into the ivy that climbed the brick wall that simply read, The Nightingale, I would have assumed that it was just someone's home. When we made it to the front door, I wasn't sure if we should knock or just walk in. I turned the knob and pushed the door open to be greeted by the typical ring of a shop bell hanging from the door. As we made our way inside, we were met with the rich, heady fragrance of incense and perfumes. The room was dark, lit by the warm glow of shaded table lamps. Just from first glance, I could tell that this was far from the typical shop. Instead of normal racks, all items were simply displayed on what looked like eclectic antique tables and tall, ceiling-high shelves. Had it not been for the prices marked on a wide variety of items, I still would have assumed that we were perusing someone's personal belongings. As I made my way through the shelves and tables strewn about the room, I glanced over the assorted crystals ranging from any color imaginable, candles and even beautifully crafted handmade wands with glimmering crystal tips. It was all beginning to feel real to me for the first time. My attention had been on a display of prism necklaces when I heard the sound of beads clinking and clattering coming from the back of the shop. I looked up as a figure came through a beaded curtain in the doorway behind the counter. She moved with the grace I had never seen before. A woman, tall and slender, beautiful, clearly some Asian lineage, probably in her mid-thirties. She had smooth olive skin, black, almond-shaped eyes that seemed to sparkle with the light of the stars, a petite nose and full lips. She had smooth, wavy, dark coffee hair that dipped just below her shoulders. She wore a red velvet dress that hugged in all the right places, accentuating the curve of her humble yet perky breasts. A silver crescent moon necklace rested, nestled in the sanctuary of her cleavage. "'Good morning, gentlemen,' she said in what sounded like a classy English accent. Her suave voice was deeper than I would have expected, but not at all unpleasant. "'Welcome to the Nightingale. I am Leona Wayworth, proprietor of this fine establishment.' Might I help you with anything in particular? I really had no intention of buying anything and was just about to tell her that we were only browsing when Blair quickly cut in. Actually, yes, he said with a smile. Could you help us find a book? A book, she said, her full lips curling into an enchanting smile. 
And what book would that be? Well, he paused. I'm not sure exactly. Maybe a book of Wiccan spells or green magic in general. Do you have any recommendations? Hmm, she hummed in amusement. You boys do understand that magic is not a toy. Of course, Blair said. Miss Wayworth came out from behind the counter, moving with her fluid-like grace. At first, she circled us both, looking us up and down as if sizing us over. One long, graceful finger rested beneath her chin as she thought. She looked Blair in the eye and then gazed into mine as well before giving us both a knowing look as her full red lips curled into that enchanting smile. I have a few recommendations, she said, her dark twinkling eyes smiling. It's always a pleasure to help guide two handsome young witches such as yourselves. We ended up leaving the nightingale with two books, a purple amethyst crystal, five candles, and a plethora of various incense, not to mention a much lighter wallet. One of the books, A Witch's Bible, discussed the various rules and laws of magic, rituals as well as various spells. The other book, Coven of Two, is what Leona Wayworth had more than insisted was perfect for us. This has been part two of the audio recording of The Way It Has To Be. If you have enjoyed what you've heard so far, please consider liking subscribing, or even commenting, as the story will soon continue in part three.